welcome to the Water People podcast. Today, we're in conversation with Liz Clark. She spent the last decade surfing and sailing the South Pacific, mostly solo. Liz is the author of Swell, a sailing surfer's voyage of awakening. Before we dive in, we just wanted to remind you that it's your last chance to enter our season-long giveaway. We've teamed up with our sponsors, Sanook and Gary McNeil Concepts, to give one lucky listener a quiver of comfy Sanook footwear and a brand new Gary McNeil surfboard. To enter, all you have to do is hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to let us know what you think of the Water People podcast. That's it. We'll announce the winner during the next episode, our 13th. It's going to be a really good one with the heroic elder of our culture. So be sure to tune in and find out who will be scoring some cozy new footwear and a brand new board just in time for the holidays. Thanks for listening with us. Can you hold the mic? My arms are sore from paddling. (laughs) (laughs) That is a good sign. And happily, yes, I can. It's been a good day. Uh, Over the course of a decade, Liz Clark has sailed and surfed 25,000 nautical miles across and around the Pacific, mostly solo. In 2014-2015, National Geographic recognized Liz as one of their adventures of the year, which is something kind of bestowed upon the shoulders of the planet's most tenacious explorers. As a child, Liz used to mail her chore earnings to Greenpeace. Who can say that? <laughs> That's pretty outrageous. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and today she serves as an ambassador for Patagonia and works with environmental organizations like the Changing Tides Foundation, Leah Dawson's organization to help reduce plastic consumption and, and awareness about single-use plastics. I feel like Liz is our surfing culture spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> And the female MacGyver as well. Oh my gosh, she is <laughs> the most prepared person. We went on a trip to India together for a film called Beyond the Surface with um, Crystal Thornburg Holmesy. And Liz just had every tool and little pieces of twine that were ready to fix broken bags or double as a um, clothesline. Or, I mean, she just had like weird little bits of tape and glue that were just ready to make anything functional again. Yeah. It was so cool. <laughs> I remember when you all came back from that trip um, to the property and, uh, you know, there's a million things around here that have my uh, trademark tattered um, <laughs> look about them, you know, like things almost finished, things just decrepit and abandoned because the surf got good and and she was just walking around and just in heaven fixing this, fixing that, looking at my <laughs> tools, you know, shining them up and just being an absolute legend that way. And, you know, that's that's obviously something I learned from living on a boat and needing to keep that thing seaworthy. Mm. It's, you can see that even on land there's that same amazing attribute of, of really looking after stuff and really cherishing that which you do have under your care mm. and yeah, it's just so cool. Really great to see that. And then, and then she's just such a rad little water sprite that just bubbles to go surfing and, mm. and is stoked on any kind of wave. And that's definitely something that we really cherish and um, surfing friends is that thing of having really low standards, <laughs> being really easily pleased. You know? High gratitude, low standard. <laughs> yeah. It's just like if the water's clean, and it's not crowded, or if it is crowded, there's a nice vibe in the water, then it's pumping surf, Mm. you know. So Mm. she's such a good friend to surf with in that way. And then 
all those other things are just amazing attributes that give you an insight into the depth of her character. Mm. And that's been earned. You know, that's not just like handed to her uh, in any kind of way. She's really put in the hard yards mm. and has developed that character because of yeah that time in the ocean and really just throwing herself in the deep end with that trip. You know, she really did. Yeah. Just went for it. Big, big she dreams. Did. She did. Um, Liz recently published her first book, uh, Swell, A Sailing Surfer's Voyage of Awakening, that we both read kind of voraciously. Oh, yeah, totally. It was such a fantastic, exciting, well-written yep. adventure And then our story. nephews read because they're into sailing from Tassie and they were just fizzing on it as well, which is really neat to see, like, you know, 17-year-old sailing boys from Tassie just buzzing on Liz's story. Yeah. That's really cool too. Yeah. So Liz, um, Liz studied environmental science at UCSB, but before that, she, like all of us, started out with a dream. She started out with a dream of wanting to set sail on her own, and that dream evolved. But it really made me want to ask of myself, to remind myself, and to ask you, what did you dream of as a kid? What did you want to be or do or experience? Like, what were those seeds of big ideas that maybe came to fruition or maybe didn't? Uh, well, for me, <laughs> it's pretty uh, boring to share, <laughs> but it's not boring to live. But exactly what we're doing now has always been my dream to have a family, to be growing food, to be healthy, to be in love, to be surfing and having some kind of uh, attempt at a meaningful life um, and contributing in balancing healthy ways to the world, you know. And and that was it from the very earliest days for me, as far back as I can remember, because my earliest memories were of, well, earliest fond memories really were of living on a property in New Zealand where we had food growing in our gardens and a country kind of life. And then surfing came along and then I always loved being around kids and always wanted to have a family. And so all those things are happening and have been for a while. And, and so really, <laughs> it's just this. Yeah, really, really this. <laughs> so anyway, moving right along, what's yours? It's such a sweet little cliche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. feels good. I, um, in a lot of ways, your dreams have kind of infiltrated my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a dream bully. <laughs> you are a dream weaver. <laughs> That's another nice way to put it, sure. I grew up in a single parent household, having seen love and marriage break down and not really be something to aspire to. Um, so I didn't dream of having a family. I grew up away from my extended family, so I didn't grow up around kids at all. So having kids and having a family wasn't a big part of my childhood dreaming. My big dream was to write a book. That was the one thing I remember. I remember want, like wanting to be a marine biologist, but I feel like that was more outside influence and something that really came from inside of me and um, blossomed out into the world. I remember being... I think I was like seven or eight, maybe, yeah, seven or eight. And I started writing my autobiography and it was called My Life. And <laughs> it was... <laughs> very short. Very short and probably not very interesting. But I remember being <laughs> devastated when I looked. Um, I was at my then babysitter's house 
and she had um, Bill Clinton's autobiography on her table. She was was much older than me, obviously, in her 20s or something. She had Bill Clinton's autobiography um, on her table, and you'll never guess what the name of that book was. It was my life, (laughs) and I was devastated. (laughs) Somebody took it. And also, like, kind of bummed for him that a seven-year-old had chosen the same (laughs) name as his adult presidential (laughs) autobiography. Yeah, that's funny. Maybe uh, he did inhale after all. That's where he came up <laughs> yeah, with the exactly. name for that book. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and since then, yeah, living a surfing life has been um, been a huge part of my ongoing dreaming. But I was just thinking, and we were having a conversation in our kitchen today about how dreaming as adults is not really something that's communally supported or encouraged. Mm. And I love Gloria Steinem always says she said over over time over space and time that in dreaming is a form of planning it's big picture you know personal and planetary kind of mm. hoping dreaming and wishing and projecting potentials into the future yeah fantastic i love that i would say that i probably spend 90% of my waking time in a dreaming state and reluctantly are pulled into... 90%. Oh, it's pretty... Really, for me, mostly, you know, these days, like when we're at home like this, is, okay, you know, we're going walking in the forest and we're dreaming as we go down secret tracks and make new trails through the bush to the beach. And then when we're on the beach, it's all about the dream of being in that space. Is it dreaming or is that just to me, that's, being present? No, nah, to me that's like a dream because my imagination is infused with all the little things that we're doing and then reluctantly I'm pulled into, oh, I better take care of this phone call or that thing or, oh, yeah, we've got to do some tidying up around here and, you know, farm jobs and stuff like that. But I would say if it's not 90%, then I'm aiming for it to be at least 90%, <laughs> which is you know, just a vibrant way for me to feel okay and live a nice life. What what kind of future scope dreams do you hold right now? (laughs) Uh, Really just the continuation of this dream. (laughs) I told you it was boring. (laughs) Um, I really just have that feeling of this perpetuating and kind of a grateful state continuing to fall into the next grateful moment. Okay, but the American in me wants to know, what do you want to do? (laughs) What are you going to make? (laughs) What are you going to produce? That's why, again, um, like, you know, talking about amazing women, um, in the latest issue of Dumbo Feather is that amazing quote about contentment being a radical act Mm. and this beautiful lady who's a Dharma teacher and... Catherine Ingram? Is that her name? I think Yeah. Talking with Barry, just laid that out so clear and so beautifully about contentment being really radical in a world that's pursuing progression and expansion and goals Mm. and productivity and all of this sort of thing, which often sort of grates at a surfing life. It doesn't quite fit with a surfing life. But for us and for me right now, the idea of contentment comes through having time and space to be at the beach and to respond to the phone call when it's the right conditions and all that and yeah that really is that feeling of wanting this to just continue this type of Mm. life and the dream of certain attainments or goals being met doesn't really pop into my mind that much Mm. um yeah how is that for you is it a different 
Well, I actually, no, I'm going to interrupt because as you're about to say something, <laughs> because you haven't mentioned that you are actually writing a book right now. That's true. And that, that's pretty amazing to see that dream for your life come true, considering you wanted to write since you were seven or eight years old mm. and you're doing it mm. and you're still squeezing in being an amazing mother and you're still surfing and and we're still having loving up awesome times, but you're writing a book among all of that. Yeah, it's it feels like um, just a really validating experience to get to see a dream all the way through. Mm. Yeah, it feels really good. But what I was thinking of when you were asking, um, when you were speaking about your contentment as radical dreaming and being, uh, that makes me think of Liz and how her voyage over the last 10 years has really inspired people through her blog, her writings, her Instagram, and formed this community who wants an insight into that kind of radical contentment through living really simply with less stuff, with fewer people around, with less human time, in more wild spaces, more time foraging food, getting to know the land and the sea really intimately. That's what really inspired Liz to set off from the start was feeling a little bit disenchanted by a Californian lifestyle of busyness and wastefulness. And not that California is the only place that's wasteful, of course, but just where she grew up, she was seeing how her the lifestyle that was being lived all around her was sort of incongruous with the deep experiential satisfaction of a surfing life. And so she wanted to pursue that life instead mm. and she hasn't stopped mm. so we typically begin our conversations by asking people about a time or experience after which they were never the same and we kind of have a feel for that for Liz right she's been living this deep voyage over the last 10 years that's been incredibly life-changing for her so we wanted to hear a little snippet of a particular moment that really pushed her to her limits so we asked her to read a passage from her book Swell it is a moment where she is asking for a divine intervention after part of her boat gives way and she's in the middle of a 1,300-mile solo crossing through the Pacific. It wasn't her first solo crossing and it definitely wasn't her last, but it was one of the more memorable moments from the book for me. And so we'll let her take it away. We're reading from Swell, and this is called The Belly of Hell. Swell lurches with a gust. I leap from my bunk for the third time that night to clip my safety harness to the jack line and crawl forward to pull down more sail. As I emerge from the shelter of the spray dodger, blasts of wind and sea strip me of exhaustion. My hands grip and release in rote, rhythmic placements while my bare toes spread and press into the worn, wet grip of the deck. I wedge myself into my usual sail-reefing position below the boom. Tangled clumps of my hair batter my face and block my already shadowy view of the line that needs tightening. It doesn't matter. I don't really need to see it. Swell's aluminum and nylon limbs are now extensions of my own. I close my eyes and lean into each crank of the winch. Sail shortened, 
Quell's wild gallop eases into a smoother lope. I scan the horizon for lights and make sure nothing on deck has come loose. After a reverent gaze to my constellation friends, I duck back behind the dodger, dry myself off with a salty t-shirt, then go below to plot our position on the chart. Leaning back into the damp pile of sheets and pillows that line my sea berth, I look up at my family smiling down at me from the pictures on the ceiling. I sink into a light sleep until I hear, crack. I scramble back on deck in a fluster. Among the silhouettes of dangling lines and blocks, I see that the pin on the boom bang has severed, freeing the mainsail to smack and swing with the bucking motion of the swells. I make a provisional fix, then try to rest a bit more. At dawn, the wind rips out of the east through piercingly clear skies. There is a manic electric feel in the air. I take a morning drenching from the seas coming over the deck as I work through a better fix for the vang. We bash through the growing seas that day and I'm frustrated as our heading slips west of our course with the shortened sails and westbound push of the seas. Elise, Elise, this is swell. Do you copy? I hail Chris over the radio for our noon discourse. Hey swell, I'm here. How you doing girl? I'm okay. But the wind came up hard overnight. We're hanging on about five to 10 degrees off course. Yeah, I downloaded the weather this morning and saw a strong pressure gradient forming over you. Hmm, it's strong all right. How are you, what's your position? I'm about two days out of Samoa, Chris said, and the wind has finally turned in my favor. Hang in there, Captain. I'll be keeping an eye on that system for you. After we sign off, I download the weather files and to my horror, I see a massive low pressure system building to the south of me. It looks like the wind will blow hard from the direction I'm trying to go over the next few days. The skies remain eerily clear until dusk. The winds then falter and a thick forest of towering thunderheads sprout up all around us. With no moon, I can only make out varying shades of blackness. I don my headband to keep the hair out of my eyes and prepare for what appears to be a jungle of thunderstorms. I skirt just ahead of the first squall, then sit back under the starboard side of the dodger for a moment. Wait, what's that? I say aloud. The blackness is deepening off our port quarter. A mutant thunderhead erupts skyward, bloating and mushrooming and coming right toward us. I alter our course to starboard and run up on deck to take more sail down. All at once the air becomes oddly still and hot. There is little chance of escape, but I turn on the engine and push the throttle forward, revving into high RPMs in hopes of outrunning it. A bolt of lightning angrily stabs into the sea behind us, momentarily illuminating the face of the massive cloud beast. I'm short of breath and wide-eyed as it barrels towards us. There's nothing more I can do. The sails flog and swell bobs in the slack air. I clutch the main sheet nervously. I want to close my eyes and disappear. I want to be anywhere but here. I mumble unintelligible prayers, suddenly pious and very sorry for every bad thing I've ever done. But this only causes more dread as it brings to mind the preacher from Moby Dick as he recounted the biblical story of Jonah. Black sky and raging sea. Terrors upon terrors run shouting through his soul. Woe to him who seeks to pour oil on the waters when God has brewed them into a gale. In another instant, the monster blindsides us with the swiftest, fiercest paw of wind I've ever felt. 
The boom smacks tight against its tackle and swell is instantly pushed onto her starboard side. I frantically release the main sheet, but soon the gust relinquishes. A terrifying bolt of lightning shreds through the darkness much too close, accompanied by a booming, almighty crack of thunder. My nerves snap. Daddy! I cry out desperately into the night. He can't hear me. No one hears me. I'm horribly and painfully alone. Crack. The next bolt rips right over us. And again, the deafening sound of the sky tearing open. This is it, I think. We're going to be struck. My body trembles with fright and adrenaline as I brace for the hit. I taste blood. I sit up and try to gather myself. I must have bitten my tongue when the first violent gust hit us. Rain begins to fall. It's more like a sky of water. It drowns out the sound of the rumbling engine. I remain perched on the wooden seat in the companionway, doing my best not to touch anything metal. The seconds seem like hours as I wonder about my fate until finally the bolts of lightning move westward, raging on across the sea. I hang my head and cry, burying my face in my clammy hands. I cry for my fear, my powerlessness, my aloneness, and the fact that the night has only just begun. Dear God, if you can hear me, please transport me under crisp, dry covers of a queen-size bed in a quiet room overlooking a flowery meadow. A drop of water lands on the back of my neck and creeps down my spine, reminding me how far I am from that vision. I squint out over the bow, tears still flowing down my cheeks. A small patch of stars ahead, hints of hope, but lightning flashes a few miles off and the dread returns in my chest. The thunderheads keep me busy all night, but I manage to avoid being struck. At 5.30 a.m., the eastern horizon is a chalky gray. I'm still perched on the companionway seat, exhaustion weighing heavy on me between lingering pulses of adrenaline. Like fleeing vampires, the squalls vanish with the arrival of daylight. I retire from battle into my sea berth, desperate for rest. Barely half an hour passes before strengthening winds yank me from my prone position to reduce sail again. I try to rest through the day, but the worsening conditions keep me busy. By evening, the seas have doubled. We're in an all-out gale. There's no way to maintain our course as the wind has swung farther south. I try three reefs in the main, plus the storm jib, hoping to point higher into the wind. But swell's collisions with the steep seas feel awfully violent. Thankfully, the wind vane maintains the steering, but I still don't get any sleep that night, bracing, heaving, and wincing. Waves swat us here and there, swell shudders and flexes. By 4 a.m., it's too much. I crawl out on deck in the deafening winds and douse the main entirely. But without the drive a bit of mainsail provides, we're blown farther and farther west. Each mile lost to leeward will have to be sailed double to windward later. Heave too, I think, as the storm tactic comes to mind. I remember my Santa Barbara rigger, Marty, walking me through the procedure. Turn the wheel to windward, making the bow come across the wind as if you're going to tack. But instead of releasing the sheet, backwind the jib and leave it where it is. Then turn the wheel hard back over to leeward. 
the back-winded jib pushes the bow one way as the rudder steers the other. I give it a try. To my disbelief, our hectic advance turns into a calm and steady lifting and falling over the chaotic seas. Swell's western drift decreases enormously. I collapse into my berth at dawn and manage to sleep for a few precious hours. Swell, Swell, Elise here. You there, Lizzie? I crawl out of my bunk at noon when I hear Chris's faint call over the radio. I'm here, I muster. I made it to Samoa this morning, he says. Great, Chris. So glad you made it safely. My words come out slow and fragmented. It feels like my brain and my tongue have become disconnected from nearly three days without sleep. Bit by bit, I explain my situation. I tell him that the radio modem got wet so I can't receive weather info or emails. He takes down my position and says he'll look at the weather forecast and call me back in a few hours. Later, he reports back. Okay, Liz, you're in the middle of a huge, nasty front. But sometime tonight, the wind should turn east and decrease slightly. When it does, you will have about 18 hours to get as far southeast as you can. After that, it will shift back to the southeast and get very strong again. You'll have to go hard during that window of time if you want to make it back to French Polynesia. My heart sinks. I feel like giving up. You can do this, okay? I'm going to talk you through it, he encourages. After signing off, I clean up the explosion in the cabin and heat some soup, eating for the first time in 30 hours. After surveying the still raging gale outside, I lie back down and try for a bit more rest, praising the heave-to storm tactic that has allowed for this miraculous time out. I sleep hard for a couple more hours, then awake suddenly, scrambling up on deck to check the wind direction. Sure enough, it has calmed a bit and already shifted slightly to the east. I rush to reset the sails and get back on course. The big, sloppy, leftover seas slow our progress, but we're able to hold almost a direct course for the westernmost islands in French Polynesia through the night. Chris feeds me weather information and confidence twice the next day. On the following morning, June 8th, 2008, I relay him my position. You're almost there, Liz. Keep going. It looks like Bora Bora is going to be your best bet for landfall. If you make it, I'm going to put you up in a hotel when you get there, he says. The thought of this much too generous offer helps me escape from the hellish world I am currently trapped in. Really, I ask? Really, he says. The Water People podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Sanook. They craft the comfiest footwear around and have been advocates for a more playful and inclusive surfing culture for more than two decades. Thanks, Sanook, for your support and for encouraging water people around the globe to protect their happy places. Learn more about Sanook's partnership with the Surfrider Foundation at sanook.com. Thanks also to Gary McNeil Concepts for their support in making the podcast possible. Gary McNeil shapes some of the quirkiest boards around and is constantly innovating with new board materials like hemp and flax to reduce the petrochemical footprint of his boards. Learn more at garymcnealconcepts.com.au. One of the really fascinating aspects of Liz's voyage 
has been the fact that she really created a rite of passage for herself. Mm. And in Western culture, it's not really something that we value or incorporate into our culture anymore, is it? Yeah, it seems to me like the Western modern version of a rite of passage is, you know, getting really wasted at your 21st or your 18th in Mm. Australia. And that's the idea of you moving into adulthood. And I feel like there's a lot more to it and a lot better. At least in Australia, you have that concept of the gap year, right? After high school, a lot of kids take a year off and make lots of mistakes and, you know, experiment and take a year off before going into university or college. That's not part of American culture at all. Well, that probably comes as a, well, it's probably a result from drinking a yard glass full of beer at your 21st and destroying so many brain cells on that night. You need to have a year off. Uh, whatever it is, it's not that great. There's, we can do a lot better. But the the function of it being this moment that is a line in the sand where you were a boy and now you're a man and the difference, as Anna Rubenstein says, is that when you're a man, you know when you're acting like a boy. And so that's how it is for us blokes. And for women, um, I don't really know that's sort of secret women's business perhaps there's all kinds of things there that should be happening for uh, a young girl turning into a woman um but look we can't i I can't even really think of what those examples are in our culture have you got any of them i think the easy like the easy mirror of what you just said is being able to recognize when you're behaving like a girl you know and Mm. and especially in our culture now, dreaming up our own ideas of what femininity looks like uh, and mature femininity, what womanhood looks like in terms of being empowered and capable instead of, you know, older paradigms of womanhood that look differently than Mm. that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, usually the experience from what I've been through with people like Anna Rubinstein is that there needs to be a breaking off from what once was. Mm. And so that can be achieved through being sent out into the bush and you have to keep yourself alive for a period of time and you're isolated, you're taken away from your immediate community and all of that. Um, But if you're a water person, what does that look like? Mm. And I think it really looks like what Liz did, and that is to get in a boat and to be the master of all that is in your world at that moment And then you go into the big blue and you're so vulnerable and you just have to step up to challenge after challenge Mm. and you find the depth to yourself and your skills and your coping mechanisms. All of these things are revealed. Mm. And through that, you have physically gone from A to B. She's gone from one side of the Pacific to another side of the Pacific and to the island culture and all of that and is a different person. Mm. And so... It's just really admirable and beautiful to see Liz do that with her boat. And that's probably why it's so intriguing for so many of us because we, we wonder, oh, wow, have I gone through some kind of transition like that? And I think one of the most empowering aspects of Liz's story is that she created the experience herself. Right? Mm. In the past, I, I mean, rites of passage ceremonies are ancient parts of many indigenous cultures cross-culturally And we don't really have the space for that in our modern culture, so she took it upon herself to create that opportunity on her own. And I wonder, maybe that's what lots of us need into our middle age, 
Mm. Uh, when we're going through midlife, you know, those traditional midlife crises, um, maybe maybe an antidote to that is to recenter by leaving our comfort zones, mm. leaving our families and our world of familiarity and um, stretching our selves to remember how capable and how adaptable and yeah how much more we're able to experience in the world outside Mm. of the small bubble we create for ourselves Mm. I'm just thinking about some of our friends who are in that position and how this is something that we can challenge ourselves to rise to at any point in our lives when we're feeling lost or disconnected from the essence of ourselves. Yeah, it doesn't have to be when you're 14, 14 and, no. you know, all of a sudden you got hair on your chest or you got some boobs and you're like, well, who am I? What's going on? Is a change happening? It can be any time. Yeah. I feel like surfing fits really beautifully into that because there are these really clear transitions of your experience in the water so you can be surfing the way you've been surfing for a long time but then perhaps that outer reef that bigger wave Mm. does call you and pulls you into whole new areas of yourself your abilities your ideas of what you're capable of and you're sort of thrust into a new stage like for you right now it's all you want to get (laughs) tubed you want to get barreled I feel like I am in my mid surfing life crisis not crisis a renaissance <laughs> yeah, i would say totally it's like i i'm just reflecting on how my entire approach to surfing has been based on not falling like growing up riding heavy longboards on the east coast with not a lot of people around i never surfed with leashes and the goal was just to ride waves for as long as i could and not fall off yeah and so my whole approach has been about not taking risks not going if i'm gonna fall not going if I am not 100% certain I'm not going to make a wave. And so I'm just coming into riding new boards now, especially mid-lengths, really, and taking off when I'm not sure if I'm going to make it down the mm. face of a wave, taking off under the lip and challenging myself in new ways. And it does feel like a little, like a micro rite of passage. Totally. It's not a big one. It's just like a, okay. Well, it will be when you get your first how, proper tune. <laughs> yeah. This is how I've been up until this point. And I can keep going and things can be exactly the same. But why would I do that? Yeah. There's infinite options here. And yeah. I can keep stretching myself. And I want to while I still have the capability in my body to do that. Yeah. And there's only so long you can get dazzes. And for anyone who doesn't know what a Dazza is, it's a D-grade barrel instead of a Bazza. And that's where I have been sitting my entire surfing life. Just Dazzas. Maybe your trailing hand is kind of near the tube, but your whole body is totally visible. You're out in front of the thing. I just don't like getting lipped in the head. And that's been my experience of two riding up to this point. Well, fantastic that surfing has these layers to it and it just keeps going. We've seen that with our friends in their 70s and even 80s who are still these vibrant people who are being challenged and stretched Mm. you know eight decades into the surfing life so you know how wonderful we can do that yeah and so shouldn't we we should and let's hear a little bit more from liz about how she constructed her rite of passage in crossing the pacific alone and continuing to live a surfing life as she defines it Yeah, I didn't think of it that way. I think um, I was so focused on this dream and had had it since I was such a young girl that I, and I was also kind of looking for an escape from the world I grew up in. I never felt like, I never quite understood, you know, a lot of our 
our traditions and and the way we do things. And as I grew more interested in the environment, I just saw how so many of our habits clashed with living harmoniously with the planet. And so, although it seemed like such an unnatural, scary thing to do to go out there and you know try to be on this boat and sail all over, I. I found that connection that I was really, you know, missing in my land life all those years. I, I really felt like I fit in in this more like gruff and um, salty and challenging world. It, it just was like what I needed as that rite of passage. I, I needed more space and time to really just like face the things about myself that I wanted to improve. And, um, and I think it sped that all up in such a way that I know I would not be the person I am today had I, you know, followed a more traditional path. And I think everyone's unique and for many people they can find that rite of passage in a more conventional way, but for me I think I needed something a bit more extreme. Mm. Do you mm. feel that comfort is dangerous? Um I do I remember there's a part in the book where I say comfort is caustic. And I do feel that too much comfort makes us soft and makes us a bit um, less grateful for all the amazing comforts we have when we enjoy in modern world today. Um, I think it's just really important to be able to feel daily gratitude. And with too much comfort, I think we lose touch with how good life can be today. Hmm. Can we talk a little bit about gender? Yeah, of course. I know. <laughs> I was wondering when this is coming. Um, one of the most beautiful and striking takeaways of Swell for me is um, what a dynamic, textured, intricate version of modern womanhood you paint. And I love the way you break down so many gendered stereotypes and ideas and you just kind of, you know, you were never held back by convention. And I love that about you in so many ways, but especially through your writing, um, you take us on this adventure that's, um, you know, physically open to explore whole oceans, whole continents, whole planet, the whole planet, mm -hmm. <laughs> and open sexually and open in terms of ideas. And um, it's just really such, uh, I don't know, it just recalled, it felt like a manifesta to me in some ways of like a modern adventurous woman mm. that looks like. How, Thank you. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there are these parts of the book where you talk about how it's different being a woman on the open seas and traveling alone than it is being a man. Mm -hmm. It is just a different experience. Yeah, which is interesting because I think I was raised to not even think about gender. My dad just never made me feel weird that I liked helping him with the boat projects. And, you know, he just was happy that I was interested in what he loved and, and just made it so normal. And, and so when I was creating this dream as a kid, I, you know, they, my, both my parents were just right behind me. And so when I got out there and, and realized, oh, I'm, I'm kind of the only woman out here doing this. And 
you know, I started to become more aware of, of the fact that being a woman made it different. And, and um, you know, I faced the vulnerabilities that women face. And I also faced an extreme amount of liberation that I think women today don't get to experience enough. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you know, I think... I mean, from all ends of the spectrum of what we were talking about last night in terms of having that sexual freedom in new places where as I where I grew up, I never felt like I wanted to, you know, have a promiscuous reputation. And um, when I got out there, I just felt like, well, I can have I can, you know, hang out with this guy for the weekend and um, and then I'm going to sail on and and that's okay, you know, and and I found that that really helped me learn who I was too and what I wanted in a partner and and it was such a cool freedom to have and um so you know that in one form and then just being out there out in the open sea and just like being able to be naked and free and feel the wind on my body and you know in today's world women don't have that luxury all the time and I think there's something so magical about just feeling the elements on your skin that, you know, I just cherished having been able to have those experiences. seems like the time alone allowed you in multiple parts of your life to really figure out and be clear about what you want, like how to ask for what you want, you know, whether, I don't know if it was true sexually, but like when you don't have the pressure of future experience with someone, you can ask for exactly what you want and Mm -hmm. not fear Mm-hmm. judgment or shame or embarrassment there's 100%. so much freedom in that isn't so liberating yeah and I, I think that because of the general feeling of freedom on the trip like it just accelerated me to be able to figure out what I like what I want who I am and um and also the power that we have just by our thoughts and desires like in creating our experiences that um in in a removed way removed from being in a social network, I just felt like I was able to tap in so much deeper to the sense of um, connection we have with, you know, uh, the universe in terms of what, you know, we want our, how we want to shape our life to be. Not that we always have control or know what's coming, but um, in a huge way that connection was felt in uh, where I'd never felt that on land before. I was not a spiritual person. I was not looking to find God out there. That was not part of the goal, but, you know, the inherent way living with all these unknowns and, you know, you just don't know what tomorrow's going to bring and just gives you this sense of, like, wanting to understand the mystery of the world, I guess. Can you talk a little bit about how you felt like you started out with a very masculine attitude? Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when I left, I'd always seen you know, male sailors and that those were kind of all my role models is, was how men ran boats. And um, I wanted so badly to succeed at this dream that like I was going out there in this kind of divide and conquer sort of attitude and just found that that forcing and thinking that I was stronger and could overcome that that actually brought me into more difficult situations like when I try to force a passage if I didn't feel it and I went anyways I would get myself into trouble and you know that's when things would break or you know I'd find myself just in really awful weather and 
it was cool to see because I never found my sense of femininity. I was kind of a tomboy growing up. And so, yeah, I think it was so cool to, as time went on, start to uh, feel into my own feminine intuition about things and, and start to realize that sailing like a woman was actually a really smart and wonderful and successful way to sail like I had to be smart over strong and that you know saved me in a lot of situations and also like feeling into getting in tune with the elements and in tune with myself brought me to more waves and you know my timing would just start to get better and better as I tuned more into my feminine side I guess so that was just such an amazing experience to kind of discover that my own femininity was actually like a huge key to my success of being a captain out there. So, mm. yeah, and just understanding that femininity is unique to every woman and that it's beautiful in every woman, however they want, if they allow themselves to express it in their own way, like it's beautiful in every woman. I think when femininity is held only by women, then we're in great danger too socially and environmentally totally Femininity is so beautiful in men so and so I think true your book really has a lot to teach everyone but men too about breaking down some of those rigidly masculine ideas about yeah divide and conquer and you know kill the big fish mm -hmm. and shred the big wave and yeah. the trouble that that can get us into in our yeah. bodies and on the planet and as a culture when we move with aggression mm -hmm. instead of softness and the word that you use that's so beautiful is flow mm. uh, can you talk a little bit about flow state and your exploration of flow yeah I think at the beginning of my journey I mean I I had no idea about flow I I but when you're out there and you're really depending so much on the elements like I said before it's like you have to kind of try to figure out that mystery of what keeps you um, in that flow state where things kind of work out easily and um, the wind switches to the direction that you'd like it to and um, so that was like a you know I was as soon as I realized how much I needed that on my side to be in that in that flowing state, I just did everything I could do to figure out what, how I could stay in that state. And kind of what I realized was that um, I think the top things that help have helped me stay in flow are when I listen to my gut and prioritize that, like that right feeling over maybe what's more conventional or what's normal, prior prioritize that first. You know, how are you feeling? Does this feel right? Does it not? And that simple question. Um, and then, you know, when things aren't flowing, I think I had to, there were so many times when like the weather wasn't right, you'd get out there and you'd think it was gonna be great and turns out awful or things break and you don't know how to fix them. and. Um, I think just trying to stay positive, even when things don't go the way that you are hoping they would go. Like, I think I learned real fast that kicking your feet and crying is not going to get you anywhere. So, um, you know, slow down, take a deep breath, reevaluate your situation, look at the lessons, you know, being presented to you because I had 
certain things coming up over and over that I didn't until I started to really observe my life and observe it from kind of like a higher perspective. I didn't really see that these things were coming up all the time and I needed to deal with them or else they were just going to keep popping up, you know? Mm. So I think reevaluating and really looking for where we can just do better as a person has so much to do with how our outer um, external circumstances like arrive in our life. And then just, you know, being able to be flexible and um, adjust our course where when things, you know, are pointing to us to move in a different direction and and, tr- and trusting. Um, and that's this comes with like doing this over and over again, I think, is like just being able to trust that even though um, something doesn't look like it's what you wanted, like that there's maybe going to be something really cool that comes out of it that you wouldn't expect, I guess. So it's it's a constant, for me, flow state is a constant thing that's like constant maintenance. You know, you always need to be checking in with yourself and making sure you're, you're staying centered. And it's just one of those constant life work that we have to keep on. Mm. Another one of the huge takeaways from your book, Swell, for me, was the magic of chipping away, doing little bits of work every day and then over time huge dreams the biggest dreams can unfold if you work a little bit each day that was so so inspiring for me good yeah it was really even in the writing of the book um you know one of those things I learned that you just can't look at the whole thing or else it's just way too overwhelming for one small individual you know Uh, but just like trying to break things down into small manageable pieces so what are the top couple ways that people can start altering the way that they interact with the world to walk a little lighter? Yeah. So I think the um, definitely being aware of your consumption, reducing your consumption when you can, and then when we are consuming, you know, trying to avoid single-use plastics. Um, I like what Kimmy Werner, she uses the term like pick the low-hanging fruit. So you know, bring your um, reusable cutlery and straw and things like that that are just a simple little lifestyle change that can reduce um, our plastic waste. In terms of climate change, I think the most heavy-hitting thing we can do is to reduce our meat consumption. I've eaten a plant-based diet for about six years now, and it's not only um, does it feel good three times a day to, you know, cut my carbon footprint in half, or more, I feel great. I am super healthy, and I'm, um, you know, really able to like face the truth about what we do to animals in this world today, the ones that we eat. And um, I'm really happy not to be a part of that anymore. So, I think that's a huge thing because I think when we think about eating meat, we think about the impact on the animal, but we don't think about all the other animals, like the forests that get cleared to raise the meat, and all of the other environmental issues that surround raising livestock. So um, I think that's a really effective one. I also think that it's really important for people to follow their desires and their dreams. I think in a roundabout way, this brings all of us back to finding our connection and our purpose. And then, you know, that leads to us caring. That leads to us feeling connected and, and caring and wanting to do the right thing for the planet. So um, I know that in my personal experience, Um, I kind of had to do my own personal dream and live that first before I could really feel like I had the energy and capacity to want to give back to the planet. So I really 
feel like that's a super important thing that we can all do and it makes us all happier and better people so is there anything that you always wish people would ask you but people never ask you I think just the more spiritual side of the book and like me finding that peace that I was looking for I guess Mm -hmm. I mean I don't overtly say exactly what I found but I I hope that the book gave you a sense that I kind of you know found my connection to spirituality and yeah I just think it's important to remind everybody that it's your individual connection with the mystery the unknown god however you want to say it is like it's yours and it's only yours and that I think is the most amazing and wonderful thing about life is that we each kind of are heading towards the same conclusion, but we all have our own path to getting there. And that for those who feel lost, just keep stepping towards those bigger dreams and desires. And whether you end up getting to where you thought you were going, the journey on the way is going to give you so, so much. Thanks to Liz Clark for inspiring us all with her uncompromising bravery for so many years. You can learn more about Liz on Instagram at Captain Liz Clark. Special thanks always to our sound engineer, Shannon Soul Carroll. You can find his music on Instagram at Shannon Soul Carroll. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my partner in rhyme, Dave Rastovich, thank you for making the time to listen with us. We'll be continuing the conversation on Instagram where we're at Water People Podcast. You can find every episode and some extras on our website, waterpeoplepodcast.com.